0: Our Father loves us, and His Son holds us. That's who we are this morning as believers in Jesus, as Christians, loved by God and held by His Son. I want to ask you now to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 31, and we return today to the book of Romans. I'm thankful for Trey preaching for uh, me while I was away at a wedding in North Carolina, and it really was a blessing to hear Philip from East Point Church preach to us last week. Uh, Ken got up and said a few things about sister churches, and uh, these these are churches that are like-minded, and there are many churches in the area that are uh, we we would we know people there, and uh, there are aspects of the doctrine of the church and the practice of the church that we uh, we would be in line with. But there are some churches that are particularly aligned with Four Corners, and East Point Church is one of those. And so uh, we had Philip who was going to come and preach for us while we were were away on an elder's retreat, and we ended up canceling that, but we went ahead and had Philip come and preach anyway. He agreed to do that, so it was a blessing to have him here. So over the last two weeks, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, faithful over God's house as a son. What beautiful and rich Christological material we have seen lately as a church. And as a church, we have the second pillar of our vision statement is centering on Christ. And of course, everything we teach is meant to center on Christ. But sometimes that is just so bright And so in your face explicit. And it's wonderful that we have had that very much the case for the last three weeks. The two weeks prior where I mentioned those texts. But also before in Romans chapter 3 we read in verses 24 and 25 that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So all of this meaty Christological material just hitting us in the face. Praise God. Today, as we return to Romans, we come to the passage right after chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And you'll notice that that passage, 21 to 26, is over here on the wall Uh, As I've said before, when we start a new series, we try to select two passages that we put up on the wall. We've been doing this for a while. Uh, Two very significant or prominent passages within the book. In the case of Romans, it was really easy to select uh, this particular one. Verses 21 to 26, the paragraph that has been called the most important in the epistle in the New Testament, and for that matter, the most important paragraph ever written by men. Of course, we know the books of the Bible were written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit so that it is the Word of God, not the Word of men. And so these words from the Bible, I think we could say, and it has been said, constitute if not the most one of the most significant paragraphs in all of the world. It is as though, as we come to today, it is as though we've climbed up a majestic mountain peak and descended, and now we get the chance to look back and take it all in again from the ground. That's what we're doing today. We've just finished two weeks we spent on this passage, climbing up to this majestic mountain peak. And we've come down now, we've completed that passage, and now today we turn around and look back at it. What are the results? What are the implications of those great truths, and particularly the truth that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ? Christ. That was the core idea, and in fact, that is the big idea in this entire section running up to the end of chapter 4. This entire first big section of Romans, the big idea is justification by faith. And that was the core idea in those verses, verses 21 to 26. What are the results? What are the results? the implications of these great truths? That is the question that Paul answers in verses 27 to 31, the text we have for today. And I was just thinking about this. God's providence is amazing. It's amazing that he is involved in each of our lives, that he is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. And when you're preaching through books of the Bible, the focus is not so much on a church calendar or on uh, secular holidays or uh, other things. We do, as a church, we do Advent. Uh, But other than that, we just preach through books of the Bible. And it is amazing to see how God will coordinate books of the Bible or chunks that we're in, in a certain book, with with the date or uh, whatever we're on in the calendar and it is very fitting today that we have right before us this topic of justification by faith on the Sunday after Reformation Day. Uh, yesterday was Reformation Day, and we uh, celebrate that. And we have now here right before us the core teaching that sparked the Reformation. Not because we have planned it that way, but because this is simply where we find ourselves in the book of Romans. So the title for today is Justified by Faith, So What? So what? What are the implications? If you would, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word. What we'll do uh, is we'll read from verse 21 all the way to 31. But keep in mind that the passage we've just finished is 21 to 26. And today we're going to spend our time in 27 to 31. This is God's holy word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. And it is the very word of the living God. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. We uphold the law. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to be with us. He is already with us here this morning, moving among us by His Spirit, working in our hearts already. Not just now, but already as we have been worshiping him corporately as a local church. So let's go now and ask that this portion of the service, the instruction from his word, would be edifying to us as his people and that he would be glorified as we are conformed to the image of Christ more and more through this time under his word today. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly and reverently into your presence. We come Boldly. God, it is beyond our comprehension that we are able to come with such confidence into the presence of the I am. To the presence of the one who is. Is. All things, visible and invisible, are made. You are the Creator from everlasting to everlasting. You were, you are, and you will be. So God, speak. Speak to us, your people, this morning. Through this wonderful book, the book of Romans. God, we thank you that we have it. We thank you that Paul wrote it under the inspiration of your spirit in a very specific time. To a very specific people, and yet in your power, you have used it in so many people's lives for so long. The incalculable effect of this book in the lives of your people, for that, God, we thank you. And we thank you that we get to be here this morning in this book. So God, we pray that the teaching of it would be clear, edifying, that it would honor you, be done from a heart of love, be received with a humble heart of attentiveness and a willingness to submit to your spirit. We ask that you would go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So three effects, three implications of this doctrine of justification by faith that we're going to look at this morning, and you'll see those up here on the screens. Three effects or implications of this doctrine, which we've just seen presented so brilliantly for us on the mountaintop. Boasting demolished, monotheism demolished, demonstrated, and law defended. And if your eyes just crossed and you thought monotheism, what in the world is that? One God is basically what that means. So polytheism is multiple gods, a belief in multiple gods. Monotheism is belief in one God. And so what we have here In this passage, as we turn around and look at the results or the implications of what we saw in verses 21 to 26 is boasting, demolished, monotheism demonstrated, and law defended. So that's what we'll be looking at today. So first, boasting, demolished. Look at verses 27 to 28 then what becomes of our boasting? What a nasty word. A nasty word. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Human boasting self-congratulation pride in one's achievements this is something that paul has already drawn attention to when discussing human sinfulness and remember that the early chapters of romans particularly romans 118 to chapter 3 verse 20 is probably one of the most elaborate penetrating heart piercing descriptions of human sinfulness in all of the Bible. And in the course of Paul's exposition of our sinfulness, he shows that this characteristic, this sin of boasting is found among both the Gentiles and the Jews. And so in chapter 1, verse 30, he says of the pagans, the Gentile nations, they are insolent. Haughty, boastful. Those three words are all connected. It's all the bubbling up and different expressions of human pride. Insolent, haughty, boastful. It is found among the Gentiles. And it is found, Paul shows us, among the Jews. And really we get this explained to us all throughout Romans chapter 2. But specifically, in verse 23 of that chapter, he says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And so among the Gentiles, the pagan nations, we've got various forms of pride and boasting. Go back and read some of the most ancient documents of the pagan world, the Greco-Roman world. For that matter, read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And see how the glory of man, the pride of men, the pride of life, as John describes it, is just put all on display. The glory of ancient Rome, the glory of the rhetoricians like Cicero, or the the conquerors like Caesar, the pharaohs of Egypt, and so on and so forth, boasting in human pride. And among the Jews, boasting in the law, we've got it. We've got a handle on God. We have his law. We are his people. We please God. And as we've seen with much of Romans so far, Here Paul primarily has Jewish boasting in mind. Paul's intentions in those early chapters really is to put on display both Gentile and Jewish sin. But you cannot read through those chapters without seeing that his primary emphasis is to show the Jewish people that they too are sinners like the Gentiles mentioned at the end of chapter 1 and therefore also need a Savior and cannot find salvation in the law. So he has been doing this all Along, Jewish boasting is very much in mind, boasting in works of the law, boasting in one's supposed ability to please God by keeping his commands, trying to achieve salvation through law keeping. You know, it's interesting as I read the various membership applications for those who come forward to be members, and it. it's always such a blessing to get to know more about your story. And uh, one of the things that I've encountered, you know, you, you expect those sort of, I was living in sin, and, and I came to Christ, and, and God transformed my heart, and, and, you know, this is what I was doing before, and this is what I've seen in my life since. But it's interesting to read of the children who grow up in a Christian home and are sort of the rule followers. You know, you get that, uh, that they weren't out uh, like the prodigal son, you know, they weren't out there doing all of these crazy things, but they were just sort of plodding along, obeying mom and dad, at least in, in uh, outward appearance. But in their hearts, sinful, just like the prodigal. It's interesting to see how uh, we have these different kinds of backgrounds, all of us recognizing our need for a Savior. But I've read that many times, as I've read through membership applications of, uh, of people who came to recognize they were just trying to please people. Trying to make mom and dad happy. Trying to achieve salvation through keeping the rules. Doing what we're supposed to do. But the message of justification by faith in Christ is that we do not obey God's commands. From the heart and even externally in truth. We do not obey God's commands. None is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a substitute that God graciously provides. One who lives out the perfect law-keeping life that we all fail to live. The one who dies as a propitiation for our sins. Who takes God's judgment upon himself In our place. And that person is Jesus Christ our Lord. The one whom Paul mentions at the very beginning of chapter 1. Jesus Christ our Lord. The very son of God. Only through trusting in him. Paul emphatically says throughout. Only through trusting in him. And his righteousness can we be declared right with God. Only that way. We are justified by faith and indeed faith alone. Now, it was actually here in chapter 3 verse 28 where Martin Luther got himself in trouble putting the word alone with faith here. And so justification by faith alone. The word alone is not here in the Greek language that Paul wrote in. It's the lo- alone is not here. There's a word for that. It's not here. What was Luther doing? Well, the Catholic Church criticized him and said, you know, it's, a, it's not there. You're adding to the Scriptures. This is not what Paul is saying. It's not faith alone. Faith plus works and so forth. But what's interesting is Alone had been placed here by interpreters going all the way back to the third century. And in fact, the premier Roman Catholic theologian of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, himself had put that word here in trying to elucidate its meaning. So one can debate whether or not alone should be inserted. I suppose that's a question of... uh, Formal versus dynamic equivalency in translation. But the point really is, what is the sense of this verse? And it very much is, as interpreters going all the way back to the early church and going up to Luther, understood the sense here is clear. Faith alone. Faith plus nothing. Not faith in works saves, but faith alone. And it is on the basis... Of this law or this principle of faith, the law of faith, that boasting is excluded. Shut out, done away with, demolished. If we could be right with God by works, there would be much room for boasting. Oh, and we would be listening to it all the time. If we could be made right with God by our works, we would always be saying, look, Look at my life. Look at what I've achieved. Look at how pleasing to God I am. But since it is based on faith, no one may boast. Listen to the way Paul describes this elsewhere in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9. You probably know this. This is kind of the, for Reformation Day, this is the big one. Uh, there are many others. We, we did uh, at the Reformation party on Friday night here at the church with all of the kids, and uh, we did Romans 1:17, the end part of that, as the verse that they were to memorize, but, uh, which is great. but Ephesians 2:8 to nine is another one. Listen to what Paul says there about the gospel, "For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, so that, so that no one may boast. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, For, But far be it from me to boast, Paul says. This is Paul. If anyone as a Christian could boast, arguably the most zealous Christian who's ever lived, Paul. Most zealous Christian, most fruitful Christian, most committed Christian, ended up dying as a martyr, gave his entire life to spreading the gospel to the Great Commission, taught God's truth diligently everywhere he went, to Jew and Gentile alike, even stood in the face of Peter and said, Man, you're wrong. This Paul far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Philippians 3.3 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. Do you see why it is faith? Alone, zero confidence in the flesh. Zero confidence in your ability to please God. Zero confidence in your ability to produce a work that would make you right with this great God. Our confidence, our boasting is entirely in Christ. Let me say it this way. The achievement of another is the meditation of our hearts, the song of our rejoicing? That's that's who we are. We are people who make much of Christ's achievement. We are people who are constantly singing the song of Christ, glorying in Christ, his work. His finished work, which means that if you're thinking about your salvation and you're sharing your testimony and you find yourself talking a lot about yourself, you're going in the wrong direction. The right direction is, all oh, this Christ, let me tell you about this Christ and what he did, what he accomplished. So what does this boasting look like? Well, there are many ways a person can boast. But as I was thinking about this passage, here are several ways I think it shows up in our lives. So just as we think about the implications of this for us, several ways that this boasting can show up in our, in our lives, in the flesh, right? I mean, we, we, we're told not to walk in the flesh, but in the spirit. We're told not to sow to the flesh, which means that even as Christians, we can fall into this carnal, fleshy way of being, which defines the unsaved person, but also defines the flesh of the saved person. So here are several ways it shows up in our lives. First, in your meditation. Someone in one of our small groups, in our small group one time, I won't mention her name because I don't want to embarrass her, but she mentioned uh, something that really stuck with me. She's, we were talking about meditating on God's word. And she said, when we meditate on God's word, we are not meditating on ourselves. I love the way she put that. Because that's exactly what we can fall into. We meditate on ourselves. We just churn you know, the, the, the word meditate goes back to the idea of chewing the cud. We're just sort of chewing on our successes. You know, like a big old piece of bubble gum. Just chewing on and just, just tasting the flavors of our glory. Of all the things we've accomplished, all the things we've done. Oh, we can fall into that. So we must guard our meditation Are we meditating on the glory of Christ? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Consider Jesus looking to Christ. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. That's the mind of the believer. The mind of the flesh is chewing the cut of your own glory. So your meditation, in your conversation, talking of your achievements, Talking of what you have accomplished. Bringing the conversation back to me. Bringing the conversation back to yourself. And even more, back to yourself in order that you might promote yourself. And we live in a world filled with self-promotion. I mean, who doesn't when they post those pictures, try to choose the picture that promotes self the most? It, it's all about self promotion in our culture, making yourself and your family and your life and your job and your hobbies and your leisure look the best that it can so that you receive the glory of men. And our conversation oftentimes turns around like a boomerang on ourselves. That's one way we boast. In your condescension, in your condescension. Third, just simply looking down on other people. That's easy to do. You know, our our hearts are so corrupt that we grow one inch in the Lord and we grow one foot in condescension. It's awful what is produced in our hearts and how moment by moment we need God's grace. Moment by moment we need his help so that we don't take that one inch of spiritual growth and turn it into an entire foot of human pride, boasting, looking down on those, well, I've just read my Bible through in a year. You haven't. Have you read your Bible? Are you doing the read through the Bible in 90 days? Well, I am. So we do that. We do that. And so the things that we have in our lives the spiritual disciplines that God gives us in order to grow us, in order to make us more like Christ, we actually twist those in the flesh and become less like Christ through boasting. That's the work of the devil. Turning the good for the bad. So in your condescension, and finally in your preoccupation, I mentioned earlier about meditating on your successes, but here I just want to focus on self-interest. It may not necessarily be a preoccupation or a meditation on what you've done, what you've achieved or succeeded in, but just a preoccupation with yourself. Philippians 2 3. This is not counting others more significant than yourself, not looking to their interests. When you think only of yourself, what you're saying with your actions and thoughts is, I'm more important than other people. That's what you're saying. With your life. And so what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 is, no, 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 no. Look to other people's interests and consider, this is mental language, and consider them more important than yourself. This is a life lived in the gospel. So what's the remedy for all of this convicting material here? I mean, this is pretty convicting to us, I think. We, we do all four of these. Probably have done some of them this morning even. Maybe even right now. What's the remedy? The remedy, as we've seen, is to turn around and look at the mountain. That's the whole point of today's sermon. That's the whole point of this passage from Paul is to turn around and look at the mountain. That's the remedy for boasting. Look anew at the glory of Romans 3:21 to 26. The glory of the gospel of grace of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Be humbled by your sin and God's grace. Let boasting be demolished by the gospel. Let this mountain fall on you. Consider the words of the hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross, I pour contempt on all my pride. Saturate your mind with good doctrine. As Charles Hodge says, all true doctrine tends to humble men and to exalt God. And all true religion is characterized by humility and reverence. If you find that your Christianity, your doctrine exalts you, puffs you up, it's not true doctrine. Because true doctrine rooted in the gospel of God's grace in Christ will humble you and exalt God and others. So we've seen one implication of justification by faith in Christ. It demolishes boasting. But there's more. And that leads us to our second point. Monotheism demonstrated. Look at verses 29 to 30. Verses 29 to 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So what if Paul's gospel message were not true? If Christ were not the substitute, And propitiation. What if it really was about works of the law? What if Jewish law keeping was the way to eternal life, to know God? As some of the Pharisees in Jesus' day would have thought, and it appears Paul before his conversion very much thought his blamelessness according to the law. That was his confidence. Philippians 3. What if it really was all about works of the law? Well then, Paul says, God would merely be the God of the Jews. So follow the logic. We're looking at the implications. We see what this doctrine does to boasting. Totally demolishes it. Now we're looking at what it shows about God. God would merely be the God of the Jews if that were the case. As one commentator, Douglas Moo, says, if justification is by works of the law, then only those in the law, you see that, only those in the law can be justified, and God becomes the God of Jews only. But God is one. Paul says here, God is one. Or as the NIV translates it, there is only one God. And therefore, he must be God over all. Over all people. And there must be only one way to know him. Only one way to please him. He is singular. There's one God for the Jew. There's one God for the Gentile. One God with one purpose. With one standard of righteousness. Being pleased in only one way. And that way to know him... To be in right relationship with him is to be justified by faith in Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. And what Paul is doing here is is appealing to a well-known Jewish truth. The Shema. Shema, just uh, from the first Hebrew word in this sentence. Here, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One. This is the great truth of Judaism. This is the great affirmation. If you ask a Jew, what do you believe? What do you believe? At the very top of that list, there's a lot there, a lot there, but at the very top of that systematic theology, chapter one, page one of the systematic theology of the Jew is the Shema. God is one. And what Paul is doing here is he is saying to the Jew, take your main truth, take your main affirmation, and extend it to its inevitable conclusion. If God is one, then he must be more than merely the God of the Jews. He must be the God over all mankind. At this point, our minds go back to the early chapters of Genesis. Before Abraham. Remember, we have 11 full, rich chapters there before we get to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, and their descendants became the Jewish people, the, the, the people of Israel, and yet for 11 chapters, they're not there. God is working among the peoples of the world, He's the God of all. People, And here's what's amazing. The whole reason he chose Abraham. Don't forget this. The whole reason he chose Abraham was to bring about blessing through his offspring to all the families of the earth. Even in his choosing of Abraham, he has in view all peoples. And we see this going back to Genesis 3.15. God, through Abraham, is fulfilling the promise that he made to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, where he told them that her descendant would crush the head of the serpent. So God is the God of all people. Listen to the way Calvin describes this. For the circumstance that God, for a time, chose for himself a peculiar people Did not make void the origin of mankind, who were all formed after the image of God and were to be brought up in the world in the hope of a blessed eternity. Just think about God's relationship with Noah before Abraham, before the people of Israel. God's relationship with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There, through them, God is blessing all of the peoples. So, says Paul, one of the implications of justification by faith alone is that it demonstrates God's oneness. It shows the truth of monotheism. So as we look back at this mountain, the mountain of chapter 3, 21 to 26, boasting is demolished, monotheism, the oneness of God is put on display. Let me just ask a quick question before we go on to our final point. And that is, what effect should this truth have on us about God's monotheism? Or God's oneness, I should say. I like the way John Stott puts it briefly. He says, it unites believers and excludes discrimination. You know, during this time where there's much discussion of racism, Christians have to be careful not to adopt the definitions and analytical, analytical categories of the world. When we come to the question of different races and the interaction of different races, we're always going back to what the Bible teaches about those things. For us, we cannot but think in theological categories. Not in the world's categories, but in theological categories given to us by the Bible. And so here, embedded in this passage, we have something that speaks to our current moment. The monotheism, the oneness of God, tells us that there can be no discrimination among human beings. That racism makes utterly no sense because God is the God of all the peoples of the world, everywhere, at every time. Finally, we come to law defended. We have boasting demolished, monotheism demonstrated, and finally we come to law defended. Look at verse 31 as we close. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's a bit shocking. It's it's a bit surprising. One of the biggest objections that Paul would have undoubtedly heard from his critics is this. Okay, Paul. If justification is by faith apart from works of the law, as you say, then the law, God's holy law, Paul. We're talking about God's law. You know God gave his law to his people on Mount Sinai. It's God's law, Paul. It's holy and righteous and good, Paul will affirm in Romans 7. God's holy law is made void, Paul. It's nullified, it's overturned, it's rendered purposeless. It doesn't matter what we do. So I guess who cares? Keeping God's commands doesn't matter. It's just about this faith of which you speak, which has replaced or overturned the law in your message, Paul. Doesn't matter what we do, the law is overthrown. That's the kind of thing Paul would have heard. That's the kind of objection that would have been leveled against his gospel. That's why we read what we do in Romans 6. But Paul, Paul's response is striking. He says, No. No, it's actually the exact opposite. And that's incredible to us. As as you think about the response, he doesn't just say, No, 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 let me explain how that's not quite the case. That's not the case. No, no, he doesn't. He says, No, no, it's the opposite of what you're saying. The message of justification by faith alone actually makes the law stand up straight and strong, it upholds it, causes it to stand. How so? Well, let's look at a few texts in Romans to fill this out. And So I need you to kind of come in with me here. We're going to look at three passages in Romans that I think together help us to interpret Scripture with Scripture. They help us to understand what Paul is saying here when he says that through the gospel of justification by faith alone, the law, which he seems to have been throwing spitballs at for a while, is now upheld. How is that? Romans 2, 26 to 27 and 29. You remember we covered this some time ago. So if a man who is uncircumcised, this is a non-Jew, keeps the precepts of the law. So Paul has a category for a non-Jew who actually keeps the law. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Circumcision. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And then verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man but from God. So let me just paraphrase here and summarize what we're seeing there. What Paul is saying is that those who are in Christ have a circumcised heart. And from the heart, by the Spirit, keep the law. We find this in Romans 8, verses 3 to 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And here we go, here it is. This is important for this passage. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So now we get some further information here, what Paul means. Justification by faith alone, which saves people, creates a situation in which we, from the heart, as we walk in the spirit, keep God's Law from the heart. Going back to Romans 2. And then finally, Romans 13, verse 8 and 10. Verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 10, "Love Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So now we're told that the person whose heart is so transformed as to, though imperfectly and though with sin in our lives, loves God truly. Remember, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He told his disciples that he recognized that they loved him. They did, truly, imperfectly, but we love God and we love our neighbor. That's in our hearts. We've been changed. We have a new heart. And it is in the hearts of people who have this love that the law of God is being upheld. The law of God is fulfilled in that respect. Now, we can talk about other ways in which the law is fulfilled. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. We could talk about how the Old Testament testifies to the the coming of Christ and the events of the New Testament. But specifically here, in the context of Romans, it seems as though Paul is saying that in the believer, the law is upheld because we keep the law by the Spirit from the heart. We trust God and we have love. Martin Luther says it this way, the law is established or confirmed when its demands or injunctions are heeded. And those who are believers do heed imperfectly, but we do by God's grace. So what does this mean for us? We are justified apart from the law, and yet we do not do away with the law. There is no place for antinomianism. You've heard this. It basically just means no law or without the law or anti-law. There's a notion out there that basically you trust Christ and, and you're forgiven, and then it doesn't really matter what you do after that. And, and that's an extreme version of it, but it can, it can be presented in a healthier way and be antinomianism nonetheless. The idea that the law is gone. There is no more importance to the law. We're just saved, period. That's it. As Christians... We keep the law of God from the heart. We fulfill the law with lives of faith and love in the spirit. One commentator, Thomas Schreiner, describes it this way. The moral norms of the law still function as the authoritative will of God for the believer since they are part of the law of Christ. You get this language in James, right? The law of Christ. The moral norms of the Old Testament law being lived out in the Spirit, faith in Christ, being conformed to Christ, loving God and neighbor, the law of Christ being fulfilled. Our lives are governed by the Word of God as the Spirit uses it to transform us day by day into the perfect likeness of Jesus Christ. The law of God fulfilled in the hearts of the people of God. So what are the implications of this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone as we finish up this morning? As we think about that mountain, that massive, beautiful mountain peak that we look at and we marvel at and we see Romans 3, 21 to 26, we'll keep this in mind, we don't just walk away from it and go on about life. Paul goes from there to here what we've looked at today. and What Paul says to us by the inspiration of the Spirit is that in light of these gospel truths, namely and primarily justification by faith in Christ, boasting is demolished, monotheism is demonstrated, and God's law is defended it is upheld. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word today. We pray that it would have its effect in our lives this week as we meet for groups and as we meditate on it at home. Lord, even this morning as we continue with this service, that you would help these truths to Saturate our our minds and our hearts as we come forward for communion and as we sing and uh, continue in the service. Lord, we just are so thankful for your word and we humbly submit ourselves to it. We ask that you would not allow it to be snatched away. We know the devil is a uh, seed snatcher, we know that he hates your word, your gospel. And he loves, like a bird, to fly down and grab hold of that seed and carry it away and eat it up. Lord, we pray that today you would protect us from that. And that this word today would sink down into good soil and bear good fruit. For your glory, for the renown of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.